Al Berry and Tim Parrish. This is the Puck Junk Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Puck Junk Hockey Podcast. I'm Sal Berry and along with me is Tim Parrish. And today we're going to talk about the Miracle on Ice hockey game and collectibles related to that for the 40th anniversary of that uh, 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team winning the gold medal. Uh, We're also going to recap National Hockey Card Day, and we're going to talk about some NHL things, mainly uh, the stadium series that just happened uh, about a week ago, and then the the feud, I love it, a feud between Daniel Carcillo and Paul Bissonnette. So uh, uh, Twitter feuds are not just the... uh, not just the thing of musicians and politicians and, and stuff like that. We got hockey players, well, former hockey players feuding. So, uh, Tim, how are you today? Are you feuding with anybody at the moment? Armed and ready. Armed and ready. Armed yes. and dangerous. Yes. Um, no, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm like a pit bull in a butcher shop. That's a good analogy, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> my aunt has three pit bulls. And uh, they're fat. They're fat pit bulls. They eat a lot. They look like they live in a butcher shop. Well, I could say I'm as happy as a tick on a fat dog. You know, oh, too. yeah. Until that until that uh, dog gets dipped and then that tick is no longer happy. That's true. So, um, and yeah, who wants to be? I'd, I'd rather be the dog than the, the tick on the dog. But anyway, so... Um, Stadium series. I didn't watch it. I was too busy going to a Chicago Wolves hockey game, watching them lose to the Grand Rapids Griffins, which were wearing like alternate jerseys, which looked like Red Wing jerseys, except for having the Grand Rapid Griffiths logo on it. And then I'm like watching and I'm like, wait, why is Taro Hirose in, um, (laughs) in Grand Rapids right now? Yeah. I thought the same thing when you sent that picture of, uh, my boy Eric Tangrady. Oh the yeah, there. That was that was that was good to see him uh, involved in a in a game. I know for a while it was questionable as to whether or not he was gonna get signed to a contract or be put on a another team, but he's back. Tangrady. Yeah. He's bounced around quite a bit since uh, he broke into the league. Yeah, he was playing in the KHL for a little while. Looks like he played with the Devils uh, last year. Yeah, he so, was in the Devils organization, and then he didn't get signed, and he was going to go overseas, and seems like he's back. So uh, anyway, so yeah, so I didn't watch the Stadium Series. Did you watch did. that game? And I sure did. you keeping up with, the, uh, with the, uh, the shit show that followed? Yeah, um, you know, the, the game was actually fairly decent after the first period. Um, the Kings won 3-1. to one. Uh, but the game was played at Falcon Stadium, for those that didn't know. Um, Falcon Stadium is the stadium for the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. Um, it is, for lack of a better word, not a stadium that would necessarily be capable of handling an event like this. The NHL continues to keep doing stadium events and outdoor games and hyping up the the majesty of playing outside. Um, and I'm fine with that. I mean, a lot of people are burned out on it and think it's a cash grab. And I mean, it is what it is, but the events are fun. They're usually well done, put on. Um, but this particular one had some major hangups. 
Number one, the traffic was absolutely horrible. There were huge lines for concession and bathrooms. The parking issues left and right. Um, and somebody died in the process of trying to get out of the place. So I mean, there, there were a lot of issues that came up during the thing because the, the building and the facilities just were not capable of handling that kind of thing. So you have all these traffic delays that you can expect. I mean, even even with when everybody descends upon the town under normal you know circumstances for a football game, you still get a, a, a clog of people. But, I mean, it, it was a mess. And the, and the fallout, I mean, as, as more and more things come out of, of stuff that went on and the takes of the different media members that were there and, you know, other people have, have been telling their stories about what it was like to get in and out of that place. I mean, there was a whole group of media people that I've heard talk about this that left after the first period because they knew they were never going to get out of there. What I want to know is this stadium has a big capacity. Why was this? Why didn't it work? See, I can understand if you're trying to cram 50,000 people in a stadium that seats 20,000 people, like if like, you know, getting in and out that, you know, having, you know, being able to accommodate that many people for bathrooms and for parking and for concessions and stuff like that. And I understand that there were some problems with like the, the highway, there was like only one highway that went in and out or something like that. And that there was construction on the road, which slowed it down, you know, cause then it went down to like whatever, two lanes or whatever. And what I want to know is why did all the other things fail? Well, I mean, you're not talking about sticking 43,000 people in a 90,000-seat stadium. Um, Falcon Stadium only holds about 45,000. So uh, selling okay. 43,000 seats, you're almost at capacity. And, of course, it's a hockey game and not a football game. So the orientation on the field and the way the, the rink is set up and everything else is a little bit different. So, mm -hmm. um, so the I mean – it was near capacity crowd um, right off the bat. And they kind of showed um, they would flash to the crowd during the game and you can kind of see how many people were in there. Mm -hmm. But honestly, there were a ton of empty seats right off the bat. Um, and because people still hadn't gotten to their seats yet when they started the whole pregame ceremonies and the flyovers and all of that kind of stuff. So, mm -hmm. um, which was really cool. I mean, that, it seemed like it'd be a great event. Um, they had musical performances and all sorts of stuff that went on. Um, but like I said, it, it became, it started to fall The logistics of it started to fall apart when they realized that they couldn't handle the amount of people that were trying to come in all at once. They didn't have enough concession areas available they didn't have enough bathrooms they didn't even have makeshift bathroom like port enough porta potties or anything to go around to but what stop I'm trying people to from standing in line forever what i'm trying to understand is but if it was a football game that had forty five thousand people why would it not have had those same problems that's what i'm trying to understand i don't know i don't 
I don't know if they have. I mean, they do get the traffic congestion, and they always announce it that you should come early to the game. Right. But I'm not familiar with that area, but I know there were some road condition changes, and and traffic was rerouted beforehand for various reasons, uh, which they didn't plan for. Um, something like I, I think I heard they were doing emergency pothole repairs or something like mm-hmm. that. So. Um, it, it's kind of like you have 43,000 people and you're pushing them into a funnel, you know? Yeah, and no, I get that big analogy. opening and you have this little, this little exit point well, and that's what, what caused trying, all the problems. But what I'm trying to I don't know that they have that problem during football games. Why is that? Is it because people come early and tailgate for five hours beforehand? And so they just gradually show up? Could be. I don't know. I, I can't say I'm a big college football person. And even if I was, I don't know that I would know really what's going on with air force. No, that's cool. Uh, But so I, I couldn't really speak to that, but I just know that it's, uh, it was a big mess. And like I said, somebody even died. A guy fell off of, uh, like a a walkway bridge and was killed during the exit process. Um, I think it was near like the north gate of the of the building. So, I mean, it was it was a mess. I mean, from t- from a TV standpoint, yeah, it looked great sitting in my living room. But I mean, there were people talking that it was hours before they were able to get in and get out. Yeah, and you know, like you said, um, sitting in my living room, that's a great point because I know, like uh, last year when the winter classic was held at Notre Dame stadium and it was, um, Bruins and Blackhawks and somebody offered me tickets. I didn't know how great the tickets were. I wasn't going to be like, well, that depends. Are these nosebleeds or these really good tickets? You know, somebody offers you tickets for free. You don't, you don't like, you don't get picky, right? You just either say, Oh, thank you. Or no, thank you. Right. And I thought about it and I said, no, thank you. I mean, they emailed me and I emailed them back and I said, no, thank you. And the reason was, was because one, it'd be a three hour drive to get there. Two, it'd be a three hour drive to get home. Three, it'd be really cold outside. And four, I'd probably enjoy watching the game more on my TV at home than watching it in person. Even though that would have been cool. That's what, uh, that's what I, I that, that was just kind of like my part of my decision making process. I remember in 2009 when they had the Winter Classic in Chicago, uh, they uh, they had that at Wrigley Field. Now, I, I do regret not going to that one because that would have been cool. Because honestly, I live in the city. Wrigley Field is like 15 minutes away from where I live by train. So, I mean, I literally I could get there in like half an hour tops, you know what I mean? Assuming that I have to wait, you know, 10 minutes for a train and then walk five minutes from the train stop to the, to Wrigley field. So that would have been, that would have been ideal for me, but I was just like, ah, it's going to be cold outside and it's January one and I want to stay home. And then like, as far as the stadium series goes, like I've been to soldier field in the winter before and it's really cold. And I was just like, uh, and I mean that was the one where they beat the Penguins, so that would have been fun to see for obvious reasons. But allegedly, ale- allegedly what they beat the Penguins. That was the only. That's the only outdoor game the Blackhawks have won, if I remember correctly. 
So, because they lost to like <laughs> uh, pretty much every other time they played outdoors, they've lost. And and so I just um, I don't see the appeal of it because it's. I mean, yeah, I get it. It's cold outside, but there's a reason why I don't go to Bears games because it's cold. Well, because the tickets are expensive, and I don't really care. But also because it's really cold outside. Um, but I'll tell you this. If the Blackhawks do end up being in another Winter Classic or Stadium Series, because, you know, they do, they are every two to three years. Um, I'm trying to think of, like, what places have they not played yet in Chicago. Uh, the Where the White Sox play. Now it's called Guaranteed Rate Arena. Used to be U.S. Cellular Field. I, I still, still call, call it Comiskey Park. Yeah, yeah. yeah it so, will be Comiskey uh, until the day I die. Although I loved, I loved when the people called it the cell block for U.S. Stadium Field, but yeah. or, or U.S. Cellular, cellular Field, but uh, Guaranteed Rate Arena is just such a, it's like it's like a big red arrow pointing down, and it's just like, yep, that's the team that <laughs> that's emblematic of the team. They should just have that as their logo, you know, like an arrow pointing down. Um, yeah. So I might, I'd consider that, but I mean, for the most part, yeah, it just, they always seem like a mess and I'm just not that interested in freezing my butt off, paying $8 for a hot dog and then, you know, waiting an hour to get the hell out of the stadium. Well, I know with the the Notre Dame one, they ran out of food, like before the first period. That's right. Yeah. And they had a problem with the bathroom lines too. Because the other thing too, Notre Dame is, you know, they don't, uh. I mean, they do things a little differently. They're, obviously, with a college and an independent college at that, and a um, Catholic college. I mean, they have generally they have different rules and they run things differently. So, having a major sport come in that is full of people that like to imbibe on the spirits, um, they weren't capable of handling that. So, how do you run out of was, food? They they just didn't they didn't anticipate what they were getting into and same like i said same thing happened here i mean you have to imagine that they already have traffic problems as it is during the football games and like i said i can't speak to that but i imagine they would still have those issues but at the same time you know when things start to fall apart they fell apart quick and you know the whole thing started being dubbed on twitter as uh, nhl's version of the fire festival because it was it was just a mess I mean, they, they even tweeted out, the Air Force tweeted out from their flyovers some pictures, mm-hmm. and they inadvertently took pictures of, like, the stadium area that, that showed a, a wider, like, a wider shot. Mm-hmm. And you could see, and it was, like, just after the game started, you could still see the trap, like, the traffic trying to get in and out of the place. It was absolutely insane. But uh, What was the you know, fire festival, for those who don't know? Fire Festival was some big concert event that was being held and turned into like this just giant logistical mess. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it was, uh, I think it was held in like some, on some island somewhere, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Okay, so... Hopefully the NHL will do a little better next time they uh, have That's another. That's the thing. I think the NHL did good with what with their portion of it, but I don't. I mean, yeah, of course the NHL people were involved with the logistics and everything of it, but at the same time, man, 
the people, the people there, the facilities, people, and everything else, you would think they have to at least anticipate and work with them on this, but mm-hmm. they'll figure it out. Hopefully, the next one, the next time around, won't be as big of a mess. All right. So, speaking of big messes, let's talk about the uh, the Twitter feud between. Oh, you, gotta, you gotta love those those segues. They're just segues. Perfect. Yeah, I'm always looking for always looking for the the perfect segue. So. Big mess. Now we're going to talk about Daniel Carcillo and Paul Bissonette, and they be fighting on Twitter. This was a this is a long a long kind of story that was involved here, um, but essentially, essentially what happened is Carcillo went after um, Bissonette. Bissonette, as well as other people, um, many of his co-workers, and was essentially attacking them online. Uh, he was told numerous times to stop by numerous people and to back off. And with nothing but respect, because everybody respects what Carcillo has tried to do with his life after hockey, but at the same time, he drags a bunch of issues in, and it's really the proverbial pot calling the kettle black in mm-hmm. most cases. Um, this latest one, um, he went after Jeremy Roenick, of course, who was recently fired by NBC. Mm-hmm. Um, and we speculated the last time around where he was going to end up. And one of the places I said was Barstool, which could actually happen, but we'll see. But yeah, Carcillo went after him as being, you know, misogynistic and you know sexist and all this kind of stuff and then he attacked the guys on on spit and chicklets for various things and namely went after paul um and decided to instead of logically going after him he actually brought up an article that was written and has been plastered all over both social media and a lot of different hockey feeds mm-hmm. uh, that was written about Bissonette being the quote-unquote most influential man in hockey. And most of that has to do with the fact that he's, his media stardom, if you want to call it, has been boosted, namely because of the Spit and Chicklets podcast, but he's everywhere. He does interviews, he goes places, he does interviews with players. I mean, it's so so he's out there and he's very accessible and he's not afraid to do a to do an interview with people and so he does that. So uh the Globe and Mail, which I'm not familiar with, but um a writer uh Jamie Ross reached out to him and he agreed to do the interview, so they came out with this article. Well, Carcillo basically throws it out there that this article was like a distraction to take away from the whole Ronick thing. Well, that article came out before Ronick was even on the show. And really? he said the things that he said. Yeah. So, you know, he's making jabs about this article that had nothing to do with JR at all. And he was told to back off and stop talking about it and back off numerous times. And you know, you can only poke the bear so many times before they snap. So, uh, Biz Nasty took to Twitter and basically called Carcillo out on all of his crap. 
Now, it just to, became public. Just before we get into that part, so what I just want to say is that, uh, I mean, even before the Spitting Chicklets podcast, Paul Bissonette had a pretty big following on Twitter anyway, because he would tweet some hilarious stuff. Oh, he was extremely entertaining. And then even like when he was with the Coyotes, he would do like these hilarious videos. Like they did, my favorite one is like, what is a grocery stick? Did you ever see that one? Uh, uh, I don't know if I saw that one. Okay, so so a grocery stick, I love this uh, analogy, by the way. So it's a derogatory term for a player that, doesn't get a lot of ice time. So you know how, like, they'd say if you're at the end of the bench, you're not going to play, right? Like maybe in football or something. I don't know. You ever play football or baseball? Where do you put the bench warmer kids or the bench warmers? They're at the end of the bench, right? Pretty much. Okay, but in hockey, you know, at one end of the bench, there's a defenseman, right? Because they're exiting in the one door. And the other end of the bench, there's the the forwards, right? Because they're exiting towards more towards the uh, attacking zone, right? Right. So... The grocery stick is the player that sits between the middle, between the defenseman and the forwards, right? Because he, so he separates the two because he's the guy who's not moving. He's not moving off the bench. So he just sits in the middle. I mean, um, some of my guys have done that in like rec league when they're like hurt a little bit and they just want to sit out a shift or two. They'll just like sit down in between the forwards and the the defenseman, right? Because they're, they're not, they don't want to be in the way, but in the NHL, it's like, if you're sitting in the middle of the bench, you're probably not, <laughs> and you're not moving. You're the grocery stick. You're the guy who's separating the the one from the other, right? So he did he did a he did this video about being a grocery stick. And just like, and some people call me grocery stick, and that's mean, and that hurts my feelings. And it was hilarious. So I mean, he's made fun of himself. Um, the only Chicklets podcast I listened to was the one with Ronick. I mean, I guess I'm just a little slow on the uptake. I don't have the highest opinion of Barstool Sports because I know a lot of their fans, a.k.a. the Stoolies, uh, they'll harass people if they disagree with one of the writers. I know a lot of them are misogynistic and they'll go after a particular sports writer in Chicago, a female sports writer whom I'm acquainted with, and the Stoolies will just attack her. So I have a hard time embracing anything barstool just because i've seen the worst of what it what it can bring out in people and so i i I don't know i'm not i'm not a huge fan of that so that's why i just couldn't care less about the spitting chicklets podcast because i i kind of have this opinion about barstool sports already but But you can have an opinion based off of actions that resulted in something that you may or may not have agreed with carcillo basically took this to say everybody was this label everybody was x everybody was this and nobody should listen to anything they say and blah 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 and basically threw out there that you know it's a bunch of guys you know it's just a bunch of guys with sitting around and you know doing what guys do to which he got called out on it and they're like look barstool sports the ceo is a woman and you know people would post articles and stuff like that to him that you know from her and you know interviews and all this kind of stuff and his response to all that was oh it's just a pr move which basically fried him even more when it came to his credibility as far as stuff goes but you know it came out and and like i said you can only poke so many times but it, it came out some stuff that 
um, Carcillo allegedly did in the past as a player. Mm-hmm. Um, and it went from allegedly to being verified by not only other players, mm-hmm. but Dan finally admitted it himself and came out with a pseudo apology video owning up to all of the things he did in the past, but he basically still said that he's still in the right by doing what he did. But Okay, uh, and just to elaborate on that a little bit. Oh no, and let me ask one question just to clarify. Sure. Was he was he going after Bissonette because he's blaming Bissonette for what happened to Ronick? Um no, he's basically okay. lumping him into the same category as, you know, th- this person that uh, is whatever label you want to put on them. You know what I mean? Since we're, since we're putting labels on people as bigots or racists or okay, sexists okay. So he's or whatever saying, else. He's, he's calling Bissonette these, saying Bissonette are, is, is one or more of these things. Pretty much. And because of his affiliation with Barstool? Uh, I think that's part of it. Okay. Um, but there's been there's been an ongoing thing with them for for a long time between them and Carcillo asked to never be mentioned on the show like ever. So anytime something comes up about him, they always like conveniently leave out his name. Now mm-hmm. people that listen to the show know who he's talking about. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing, they always support him in what he does mm-hmm. as far as his crusade to make the game safer mm-hmm. and his work with CTE and all of that kind of stuff. Yes. But to know the kind of player he was and to go back on his career and to be another player in the NHL that knows him and played with him, it, it's very hard for them to swallow some of the stuff that he spews because they know what he was like. And that I think that's where the whole hypocrisy of the whole thing comes in. Now, yeah. Bissonette I, mentioned that the two things was that Carcillo, when they were playing together for the Wilkes-Barre Scranton Penguins in the AHL, that uh, Carcillo called Bissonette the N-word, and Carcillo wore which a... Which he admitted. And that Carcillo wore a robe in the locker room, like a, like a bathrobe, I guess, with a swastika embroidered on the back. But you couldn't see... I guess the robe had it a It was hood. actually underneath the hood like like the robe. So it was like a like a boxer's robe that had like a hood, like that kind of robe, kinda. Kind of, yeah. you know, because I've had a bathrobe and it never had a hood. Yeah, well, yeah. It, yeah, it had like a hood on the back, and apparently the swastika was embroidered on the in, underside of the hood. To which his response to that, I don't even know how to embroider. I think was one of the things he said. Well, and, and like, I was gonna well, say that doesn't really mean it wasn't there. If you're going to embroider something, not that he... Okay, but let me put it to this way. I mean, let, let's let talk about, like, the, the, the steps to committing to something, right? Like, if I was going to put a insignia on something that I was wearing, the easiest thing to do would be me to take a black magic marker and to draw it, right? And then the next step up from that would be, like, an iron-on patch, Right. And then the next step from that yeah. would be like what silk having it silk screened, right? And then You're the next step out of that more and more effort to do so, right? And then the, you know to like an embroidered patch. Like if you think about like I mean, let me go back here. And I'm I'm by and by the way, I'm I'm, I'm making light of just the fact that something was embroidered. 
I'm not saying that what was embroidered was cool, but I remember like a few years ago when we bought our beer league hockey team jerseys, right? And I was looking into the different things and I'm like, oh man, I really want embroidered patches, right? I want my team to have embroidered like NHL style logos. They were so freaking expensive. We went for the next best thing, which was dye sublimation, um, dye, dye sublimation on a piece of fabric, which was then cut out and then sewed to the jersey and it looked good didn't look as good as like a like an embroidered blackhawk logo or an embroidered penguins logo i mean those are awesome right so i'm saying if you have something bad embroidered on something you wear you're really committed to that thing you know and it's it's not a joke anymore yeah and it's never a joke to begin with but well biz brought it up i mean threw it out there on twitter he's like look if you're gonna take to twitter and do this i've had enough so what about the time? And he just laid it out there. And then all of a sudden it was like, whoa, shit just got real. <laughs> and yeah. You're like, uh, okay. And of course, like I said, Carcillo didn't deny any of the stuff that he said. He did deny having the swastika on his, um, on his robe. But then there were text messages with other players to that, Paul yeah, that he posted this. basically saying, yeah, I was there. I remember. And, you know, and and that's the thing. You go after somebody in the media. What does the media have? They have the media. So they can use that and do whatever. And you could take the high road on this, but the high road was taken and he was mm-hmm. told, stop. It's enough. Mm-hmm. You know, back off. We're done with this. Mm-hmm. And he just, he just, you know, kept going. So it just escalated and escalated and escalated and you know it became this battle back and forth to where you know the one said one thing and the other would say another and then other people were getting involved jr even tweeted some stuff out about about dan what Uh, did jr have to say if you it it wasn't really anything specific it was just like you know you know like whatever dude like you know go on live your life kind of thing right Because, I mean, obviously, it's not in his best interest to get into it with anybody right now. But No, it's not. Uh, so, yeah, you know, so Biz was pissed off and, you know, he said what he needed to say. And he went on the show on Monday and basically spent the first, I don't know, 12 minutes of the show, maybe. Mm-hmm. Basically just laying it all out there and saying, look, I respect you for what you do. I, you know... I I applaud what you're trying to do. I think you should keep doing it and all of this kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. but this has got to end. And it's got to end now. And you know, apparently they had a they talked to each other and had a conversation. And I don't I don't know. I mean, it's it's just one of those it's one of those goofy things. And I'm sure it's not over. But you know, for people that are on social media and are follow follow these guys it it's been entertaining reading let's mm-hmm. put it that way yeah it's kind of i mean yeah i'm just here for the comments right jiff eating yeah. popcorn right like whatever I mean, that's exactly what it is yeah i mean um obviously um i mean i i've had this uh i've had this whole love hate thing with daniel carcillo like 
when he was with the Coyotes, I freaking loved him. I was like collecting his cards. I was like watching Coyotes games. Now the Coyotes back in like 2006, seven, seven, eight, seven, eight was his rookie season. So like, say right around there, right around the time Gretzky was coaching the team, the Coyotes were a shit show, right? Gretzky didn't know how to coach. And I'm basing that statement on what I've read from other players where Gretzky would just say things like, well, you should be able to do this. This is easy. And they'd be like, no, it's easy for you, dude, because you're the great one. And for us, this is not very easy. You know what I mean? So he wasn't, he was only the coach to be a publicity stunt for the team. And he was making $8 million a year to coach the team. So yeah, I mean, I would do that too for $8 million a year. The team had a lot of young guys that were not NHL ready pushed into the lineup. And then Carcillo would go out there and every now and then he would do something brilliant. They'd put him out there in front of the net. He had good hands. He could, he could chip in goals. He kind of re- reminded me a little bit of Bob Probert in the sense that he was formidable, but he had good hands. And I thought, okay, this kid's going to go somewhere, right? He's going to be that, like, that tough, gritty t- uh, forward, you know, that, that, that tough guy who can, who can actually play the game, right? But then, like, and obviously the Flyers thought the same thing because when they went on that, like, you know, that, I don't want to say this was pre, uh, pre-Yager and pre-Brizgalov, but, like, they signed him to the team, and then he kind of just became more of a goon. Yep. And then I didn't like him then, because I'm like, well, this is not the Daniel Carcillo that goes out there and does something, you know, get gets a clutch goal or causes chaos in front of the net and, you know, gets the rebound or whatever. This is Daniel Carcillo that goes around and, and picks fights with guys who are under his weight class. And I, I didn't like him for that, right? And then when he came to the Blackhawks, I was just kind of indifferent to him. Like, why do we have this guy? Well, I guess Kane and Taves can't fight. Burrish can fight. Actually, Burrish was off the team by then. So, um, <laughs> and then there's that great. There was a, only room for one. Yeah, pretty much. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, he was on the team in 2013, and then, and then he left, and then he came back for the uh, 14-15 season. Um, which I was surprised, like, oh, back with the Blackhawks. Okay. Uh, sure. Why not? Right. So, like I said, I went from like loving to hating to being indifferent, you know, even though when he was on my team at that point, I was just kind of like, all right, whatever. Um, but I was actually, what, what's actually kind of made me come back around, uh, to liking Daniel Carcillo again, not that my praise or affection or whatever, uh, admiration, probably better word for a player um, matters to that player or to anybody who's listening. But when I read the um, game change, the life and death of Steve Montador written by Ken Dryden, and he talked a lot with Carcillo because Carcillo considered Steve Montador his best friend. And he was so hurt by his death. And he was so, I mean, that's what motivated him to want to do all this like anti fighting, anti bullying, uh, you know, CTE research and, and all these other things. Right. So that kind of made me come around and say, okay, well, maybe you didn't, weren't the greatest guy in your NHL career, but now you're, you're, you're trying to do something that could potentially make life better for a lot of hockey players. And, and I have a lot of respect for that. So that's kind of like where I came around. So when I saw him do this, I'm like, 
no, what are you doing? No, why, why do you have to diss another person? You know, like yeah, I've never that's... heard anybody say anything bad about Paul Bissonette other than maybe he's not the greatest skater, right? Or he's a grocery stick or whatever, right? But nobody had anything bad to say about him as a person. Ryan Whitney had something bad to say. Well, but those guys, those guys BS. Is there? Uh, are you yeah, talking about in their commercial? Yeah, that's funny. It's Paul Bissonette, not Paul Bissonette. Yeah, that is such a great commercial. It is. I don't even like what is it vodka? Oh, actually, I like vodka. It's uh, pink lemonade infused vodka. Yeah. Okay. That that sounds good. I'll try it. My uh, my favorite Carcilla moment was not. I didn't like it because of him, but he was involved, and it was. Uh, the uh, game six of the playoffs in 2009 when the Flyers were up 3 nothing on the Pens and he fought Max Talbot. And at the end of the fight, Talbot skates off the ice and shushes the crowd. That's one of my favorite moments. How did Talbot do in that fight? Uh, not very good. Not very good. So why no. he shushed the crowd? Because the crowd was all cheering and going nuts because it was in Philly. And ah. He basically like shushed the crowd, which uh-huh. was motivation to like, bring the team up because they were playing flat mm-hmm. that whole game but uh yeah so that was one of my favorite moments involving Carcillo. but but yeah it, i mean not to beat a dead horse but it goes back to the whole thing of you know how you were as a player in your career and you were one way and you were that way and you made a career out of being like that and now all of a sudden you flipped probably for the better and you're probably and you're trying to do things to better the game but it's like now instead of remembering how you were and you know moving on from there and being different now you're you're gonna be different now and also point fingers at everybody else mm-hmm. when you were one of the worst of all and that that's what bothers me and i think that's what bothered a lot of people and you know eventually they had enough so so yeah so anyway so um just thought that was kind of fun to look into and talk about um so to put a bow on this one before we head to our next topic yes all right hockey card day national hockey card day national hockey card day so that was that was fun yeah so i went to a I couple got, of shops uh-huh. how many did you go to i went to like three shops i got some packs from each shop I pulled the gritty insert from what I could tell by a couple of things. By uh, the amount of people on the the trade group, it seems like a lot of them got at least one insert card. And just from looking online and seeing that there's there's quite a few. So the inserts were the Victory Black Rookies and the uh, um, mascots. mascots, right? And what I'm seeing is that I'm seeing people selling those on eBay uh, as sets of five, especially with the, the mascots. There's a lot of like set of five mascots, both the Canadian and the American. So what I'm thinking is that the mascots were probably one in every 10 packs or so, because I'm thinking if, or like one per box, because dealers will order them by the box, right? So dealer might order three boxes and they might only give away two boxes to like different people who come in and then they might have an extra box and then just say, all right, open them up. And they open them up because it seems like these are being sold as full sets, right? Whereas I remember in years past, like an insert was like really far and few between. And you'd see like 
one victory black rookie or another victory black rookie. You wouldn't see all five of them being sold at the same time. You know what I mean? Or like the Vegas Golden Knight inserts, you would see one here, one there. You wouldn't see like all of them sold together, right? Yeah. I think the victory blacks in previous years were a lot more scarce. I had, I, I didn't get any, but I saw what you're saying online with people and lots, there's lots of them out there a lot more than would normally be exposed. So, so you think that some of them were harder to get than others? Although I don't think there were any short prints, uh, as far as, um, any short prints as far as like the 15 cards uh yeah i mean i don't think they were short printed but at least in my experience the cody glass card Mm -hmm. and the ryan Suter card were like few and far between those are the ones that never showed up and there were other people in the one store that we were at there were other people opening them up and nobody was getting them my my local card shop owner texted me later in the day and said, Hey, I was able to scrounge up a couple of those. That is so frustrating. So. Cause I remember the first year, how hard it was to put together a set because upper deck told me that they had a sequencing problem with the way the cards were packed out because I remember Pecorine being impossible. I mean, I remember paying a dollar each for Pecorine cards just to complete some sets. Cause I'd have some sets that had all the cards except Pecorine. So I was like paying, I paid a dealer. He had like five of them and, and he like wanted a buck each or I I don't know what we agreed on, but that was kind of like my threshold. Like, yeah, okay, cool, man. I just want to finish some sets. Right. So yeah, it is a little frustrating when they're that hard uh, to put together. Yeah. I was still able to get at least one. So that's good. And I mean, there are trade groups and stuff and, you know, honestly, there's a lot of these cards out there, so I don't think any of the sets from years past are particularly hard to find. I should probably hunker down and get all the Canadian sets because I don't have I don't have every Canadian set. I believe I have all of the American sets, and I got to double check that because there were there was like one year I was sick and I didn't go out and get any packs, and then there was just a, another year I wasn't feeling it, so I just didn't even bother. But I might have found the set for like $5 at a show or something, you know. So there, it's a, it's a pretty easy set to put together. I think it's just, it's fun to kind of, I mean, it's a small set, not really like a huge accomplishment to put together. But I think it's, it's, it's fun to do that. Like I liked, like last year, I tried to get all of the upper deck. Um, they had the, uh, the um, hockey card day sets. They had the various arena giveaway sets. They had the um, Vancouver Canucks cards that were sold at Subway uh, sandwich shops in Vancouver, which I didn't get. They had the, um, what was it called, Family Day promotion, which obviously got a few sets of that. Um, I wonder why. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to talk about that in a, in a, in a future episode. Um <laughs> And, uh, you know, and like just all the little, the Notre Dame set that was like six cards, um, that was given away for like the, the Notre Dame, uh, um, winter classic set. So I was like trying to get all of those little, like one off upper deck sets that had like, you know, six cards, 10 cards, 15 cards, whatever, you know what I mean? And there was like over a hundred of them. And I was, 
I've always found those fun to collect, and it was even more challenging to try to get them all, which I didn't. But so that's part of the challenge of being a collector is you try. That's true. Um, so, yeah, I mean, overall, I liked the set. Um, a little disappointed that the Chris Chelios card had him as a Canadian, but I know in years past they made a Chris Chelios card in a hockey card day set that pictured him as an American, as a, uh, not an American, as, as a Blackhawk. So... He was a. I didn't even. I don't think I even noticed that. Yeah, Montreal. I think I, saw, I. I might have saw red and figured it was Detroit. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a Montreal Canadian card. So, um, yeah, it was a pretty solid set. Um, excited about Cody Glass being in that set because he's kind of up and down with the Vegas Golden Knights and the Chicago Wolves. By the way, they're not going to be affiliated with each other next season. Yeah, Vegas has got their own team that they bought. They got their own team that they bought. Which makes sense if you can buy a team. Um, I'm a little worried because the only team left without an affiliation are the Blues because the San Antonio Rampage were affiliated with the Blues. And now the Blues are going to lose that affiliation. And then, you know, there's going to be another expansion team, obviously, for Seattle. Um, But yeah, it's just, it's kind of hard to have your team in uh texas if you're not in texas and texas is a huge place anyways right Right. so um and they're moving them to henderson which is the town next door to vegas is it like a suburb or is it just like another yeah it's i mean it's another town but it's basically a suburb um they're right next to each other i mean if you go south Mm -hmm. south uh i guess that'd be southeast Mm -hmm. um it's not that far. I mean, when I when I lived out there, I lived in Henderson a couple times. Mm-hmm. So, gotcha. It's so it's just not, it's not far. Gotcha. Do people who live in Henderson say they live in Vegas, or do they yeah. say they live in Henderson? Eh, it depends. depends well, on I the mean, age of the people. If if the people are older, they say Henderson because they don't want to be affiliated with Vegas. But most people just say Vegas because it's easier. Well, like, you say, say like, Henderson, Nevada, people are like, where? Where? Well, like the Chicago Wolves are in Rosemont, Illinois. That's where they play, but they're called the Chicago Wolves. Yeah, Rosemont's a suburb. Yeah, it is, but it's its own, I mean, it's its own place. It's its own yeah. suburb. Yeah, it's its own, it, it's not Chicago proper. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I'd be interested to obviously know who the wolves are affiliated with hopefully it's a cool team i really like them being affiliated with the the knights that was like really cool you know i felt a little smug about that being a wolves fan since day one because it was just like ah look at this the cool new hot expansion team and who do they want to be affiliated with the wolves you know what i mean that just you know because i'm i've i've been going to games for years you know so i just thought oh this is exciting right I mean, probably the only... I didn't really care so much for the affiliation with Vancouver, though Eddie Lack was, like, our number one goalie, and he went on to play in the NHL. And, um, you know, with the Blues, I mean, they had both uh, Jake Allen and Jordan Biddington played for the Wolves, so that's pretty exciting. You know, I mean, they've had some good NHL-caliber players, you know, play in in the AHL with the Wolves for a few seasons and, and move up, so... And then there's, like, some rumor that, like, oh, well, wouldn't it be cool if they were affiliated with the Blackhawks? 
I'll tell you right now, that's not going to happen unless the Blackhawks ditch the Rockford Icehogs, which, you know, it's like a two hour, I think it's like two hour drive or something from point A to point B, but still like they want, I, I, I don't know. It's close enough, but I don't think the Blackhawks would be interested in having a minor league team in Chicago unless they had control of the team. Cause if you look at all the other teams where the minor league team is in the same municipal region, it's owned by the parent club, right? right? San Jose Barracuda, Toronto Marlies, the uh, Vegas whoever whatever's. I'm probably yeah. forgetting one or two, but yeah. yeah. So, so that uh, that should be fun to see what uh, what happens there. But anyway, so uh, our big topic for today is the miracle on ice. Uh, hockey game well not so much the hockey game because everybody knows what happened in that hockey game or almost everybody knows the miracle on ice 1980 u.s olympic hockey team a group that was basically made up of college kids beat the the soviet union hockey team four to three that was not the gold medal game a lot of people think it was for the gold medal no that got them to the next game and they beat uh, finland for the gold medal and that was the thing is like it was different back then. It was just kind of like you played, and then whoever like had the best record got the gold medal, and whoever didn't have the best, you know, who had like the second best record got the silver medal and stuff. It was it was a lot different back then. It wasn't like the whole bracket tournament now. But anyway, so 1980 Miracle on Ice. That was when the uh, U.S. Olympic team beat the Soviet Union four to three. Two nights later, USA went on to win the gold medal. And as far as hockey goes, it's considered the greatest international hockey game of all time. Hockey News put out a special issue in the fall called The Greatest Games. It like had like the top five international games, the top five junior games, the top five, you know, Stanley Cup final games. Like it just was kind of going through all these different things. And so this was based on the Hockey News. Uh, their number one game was the Miracle on Ice, and then the number two game was the 1972 Summit Series, Game 8, you know, Paul Henderson scoring. Their number three article, do you know, you know what that, which one that was? Canada Cup in... What year? 87. Yes, and you know who wrote that article? Who wrote the article about the Canada Cup? Yeah, in that Greatest Games issue. I'm just messing with you, I wrote it. That's why I, I was just. I was just going to say, uh, is this a trick question? <laughs> Yeah, no, it's not. Because, like, when... when I will they... take Sal Berry for 200, please. Yeah, so when they said to me, hey, do you want to write about the 87 Canada Cup? I'm like, heck yeah, I want to write about the 87 Canada Cup. But then when I realized, like, when the issue came out and I see Team USA on the cover, I was like, oh, I, I, I would have liked to have written about Team USA. Like, instead of the, the Canada Cup. But I think at the same time, like, being an American and writing about a Canadian Russian series, I was able to be a little more detached and objective from it. And I, uh, you know, whereas I think with USA, I would have probably been a little less neutral on the subject, but anyway, so yeah. So, I mean, hockey news considers it the greatest international hockey game of all time. What's unique about this is that because these players, not all of them made it to the NHL. So, the collectibles for them were kind of helter-skelter, right? Like, people will collect their favorite player. People will collect their favorite team. And now it's easier to collect, 
you know, if you wanted to like collect cards of the Miracle on Ice players, but it wasn't always that, I don't say easy, but like in the early years. So what I did is I made up a list of some of the cards. So if you recall, um, going back, well, you wouldn't recall this. I, I've never seen these. So apparently there was a set of Olympic hockey cards, 18 black and white photos from the 79-80 season. I've never seen these cards. Apparently they look like they share a design of the Baltimore Clippers minor league set, uh, which I've never seen either. So I don't know what the deal is with these. I, I've, you know, in all my years of collecting, now I haven't scoured eBay all the time for them, but I've just, I've never come across them, right? And then there was also a 1980 U.S. Olympic team mini picks set, which were 16 black and white photo cards. So also black and white, 14 player cards, one coach card of Herb Brooks, and one, they call it a score card. And these were really small. These were like one and three fourths by two and three fourths. So they were smaller than average trading card size. So I, I've never seen any of those. Have you ever seen any of those? Can't say that I have. Right. Um, I've seen a picture of the Olympic cards, but I've never seen one in person. Gotcha. Um, yeah. They're kind of like, it's just like a big white border and yep. the player photo yep. is got like a almost like the sepia color to it Mm -hmm. yeah but i i've never seen one in person though so then the first mainstream cards to feature the miracle on ice players was the 1980-81 tops and opg set so 80-81 tops was one that had the scratch off puck uh covering the name and 80-81 opg had that same puck shape but it didn't have the scratch off material so the the players in that set, Jim Craig, Ken Morrow, Mark Johnson, Mike Ramsey, Dave Christian, Rob McClanahan, and Steve Kristoff. So those guys all joined their NHL teams after the Olympics wrapped up. Uh, and the cards are unique that they have a USA Hockey Team logo on them. So they actually have a USA Hockey logo and, and just highlight that, hey, these are the guys that were on that Miracle on Ice team. And what's interesting is that that insignia carries over onto the OPG version of the cards. So I think that's kind of neat that even in the cards, the versions of the cards that were sold in Canada had that USA logo on them. Yeah. And that wasn't everybody that, that actually made the NHL because other guys came out later, but that was the vast majority of the guys. I well, mean, those 20, were the... 20 players. And I think 13 made the, made the league afterward. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that those seven joined the NHL, their NHL teams in 1980. Right after the tournament. Right. right. Guys like Dave Silk and Jack O'Callaghan and Neil Broughton, they got cards later on. Yeah. Those guys were um, included in that set. And then, I mean, there were guys, you know, like obviously like later on, like Neil Broughton, Mark Pavlich, they're in the 82-83 OPG set. Uh, Bill Baker's in the 83-84 OPG set. Dave Silk, Jack O'Callaghan, they're in the 84-85 OPG set. O'Callaghan's also in the top set. And then Eruzioni, because he never played in the NHL, he retired after his, um, I believe he retired after that. He didn't, he didn't pursue an NHL career. Correct. Uh, 
he is in a couple of oddball sets in the early 80s. I mean, now he's in a lot of sets, and that's great because he's an American icon as far as hockey players go, U.S. hockey players go. But um, he was in a couple of offbeat sets. So there was a set in 1983 called History's Greatest Olympians. There were two hockey cards in that set. It was a 99-card set, and it had two hockey players. It had Mike Ruzioni and Jim Craig. Now, the thing is, is that there's two variations of those particular cards. They either have a, an insignia at the top that has like a red, white, and blue star, and that's referred to as the star in motion because it was meant to look like a shooting star. I just thought it was a red, white, and blue stars overlapping and that's just what it is to me so i always called that the stars version but then there's also another version that has the olympic rings but in black up in that uh that box area and so that's the other version of that card so that those could which be ones are more rare uh you know in my finding from people that i spoke with and i actually wrote about this set um, it was one of my first articles for Sports Collectors Digest a couple years ago. It coined, My article came out uh, right around the time of the 2018 Winter Olympics. The Black Rings version is harder to come by. That one was sold exclusively at 7-Eleven, whereas the other ones, um, and they came out in 7-Eleven, and I believe they were, sold, they were sold in rack packs. But the ones that were sold, the ones with the stars... They were sold in rack packs, and they were also sold as a box set. So those appear to be much more plentiful than the one with the black rings. So gotcha. I guess you could say those are Ruzioni's rookie cards. Now, they look like Topps cards. They were actually pr printed by Topps. They were printed on the same stock as their 83 baseball cards. The reason why they don't say Topps on them is because a company, a small promotional company called Finder Image International made those cards. But what they did was then they went to Tops and they said, hey, we have the license to make Olympic trading cards, but we've never made trading cards before, so we're going to contract you to do it for us. And Tops said, okay, and they made them for, for them. So they basically, uh, from what I was told, Tops negotiated all the contracts with the athletes because they were good at doing that sort of thing. They printed and packaged the cards and then Finder Image worked on the marketing and promotion of those cards. And actually, there's a couple of different sets that don't have like Tops logos on them. Well, there's the 83-84 um, M&M set. Have you ever seen that? That's another box set. Yes. Yeah. So Eruzioni has a card in that, but that one came out a little bit later. So... I consider the other one his, like, rookie card, even though they both use the same photo, and they look very similar. Um, and then... But that Finder one actually does have the Topps logo on it. Uh, does it not? It does not. Let me look. Let me let me bust out the magnifying lens on this. Uh, nope. 1983 Finder Image International Manufactured Under License of LA Olympic Organization Committee. You're, that's the M&M's one? Yes, it is. Huh. I know, but they look like Topps cards. I so everybody I could have sworn the M&M's one had actually had a Topps logo. No, sir. Huh. Interesting. So got it right here in front of me. So um, anyway, so those are some early Mike Eruzioni cards. And then um, really after that, oh, 
And then if you want to talk about Herb Brooks, I mean, he did have a um, he did have a postcard in the 87-88 Minnesota North Stars team-issued postcard set. Never seen those in person. Um, and it's not really a trading card. It's not trading card sized. So I guess what I'm going to say, this is his rookie card. 1991 Impel, U.S. Olympic Hall of Fame. So after um, Finder Image did their various Olympic sets, because there was also the set on the Hostess boxes and Coca-Cola packaging, although Eruzioni did not appear on any of those um, no hockey players did. Um, 1991, Impel made a set called the U.S. Olympic Hall of Fame. It was a 90-card set. And 11 of the 90 cards are hockey cards. They are cards from the 1980 Miracle on Ice. Um, Brooks has one card that's just him uh, as a hockey player from the 60s. I don't know if he's that's him in the 60, from the 1964 team or the 1968 team because he played on both of those teams. Uh, but I'd consider that his rookie card. And then the other 10 cards have like group photos or action shots, either like all the players on the ice celebrating or like action shots from games. Have you seen those at all? Yeah, I have a few of those. Okay. It's not a bad set. You know I mean? I think I bought the full set for like a couple of dollars because it was just like, well, this way I get all the hockey cards. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so those are like, the early ones and then a couple of other oddball ones that I'm just going to list off here. Um, Oh, well, there's a big one I'm going to get to, but sports illustrated for kids. They did a card of Mike Ruzioni in a 1992 issue. And they did a card of Mark Johnson in a 1998 issue, but that Mark Johnson card actually pictures Mark Wells. Um, Starting lineup also made a Mike Ruzioni action figure in their 1998 uh, Legends series. I think it was Timeless Legends or something like that. Um, and as you know, starting lineup figures always, ca- almost always came with the trading card. Uh, and then the big, the really big one, the one that gave rookie cards to guys who like either ended up in the minors, played just a teeny tiny bit in the NHL, or retired. Um, the 1994-95 signature rookies set. That's probably the the most famous and most prevalent one you'll find. Yes, and that that's a good set. It's 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 really a good set. You know, um, we all think signature rookie cards are garbage, but this is the one good thing that they did. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a very aesthetically pleasing set too. I think the way it's designed and the the colors and the shots that they got from players because mm-hmm. it, it's not. It's got a mix of you know action shots um, with where the players are isolated, yep. and also you know other types of shots. Like there's pictures of guys you know getting the medals at the award ceremony. There's pictures of guys like in the locker room. Yeah. Um, so it's, it, I I think is a well well done set, and I I had always been chasing the singles and trying to put the set together, and sh- shockingly enough. Over the weekend with Hockey Card Day, my local shop had a sealed set that was in perfect condition sitting in a case. Mm-hmm. And I said, where in the world did this come from? He's like, I don't know. I bought a collection a couple weeks ago and it was just in there. I was like, I'll take it. <laughs> and that nice. was the end of that. It came so. in a red box? 
Yeah, I got the red box one. So it's the gold what are they, the gold edition. Gold medal edition. Gold medal edition. Yeah. And I, I know there's also a blue box too. Now, um, I don't know what the story is with the blue box because I've only seen those. Yeah, um, the blue box says commemorative edition. It doesn't say gold edition. But I've never seen a one open to tell if there's different cards in there or different the pictures. The cards are going to be the number same. different. So here's what's up with that set because the set was sold in a couple of ways and it's actually a pretty affordable set. I mean, I'm assuming it was a. Fo- Do you mind saying what you paid for it? 15 bucks. Nice. That's what I think it's worth. I bought two of them for well, ten bucks a set a couple years, well, probably ten years ago. You know, I found the rare eBay auction that closed at twelve dollars or ten dollars, but the right. vast majority of them are in the twenty to thirty dollar range. Okay, and that's fine too. So here's the deal with those with those cards. So ninety four ninety five season because nineteen ninety five would have been the fifteenth uh, tw- uh, anniversary of the Miracle on Ice. Uh, it was a 50-card set. It was sold a couple of different ways. So it was sold in packs. Uh, so a pack had five cards plus one autographed card, which actually I didn't realize that. Like, actually, I don't even remember that set coming out. Like, I kind of vaguely remember coming it out, coming out. And then I remember one one year, many years later, I was at a national in Chicago. This could have been 2008 or 2011. 2011 I had I had pretty deep pockets then so it had to be 2008 because I think I went just for one day and I didn't have a whole heck of a lot of money on me and I think somebody had a sealed box and he wanted $130 and I'm like $130 why is it so much and he's like oh well there's autographed cards and I'm just thinking most of these guys were pretty accessible as far as like writing to them for autographs so it didn't seem like other than Herb Brooks, who had passed by then, and Craig Patrick, who was known to not sign through the mail, I was just thinking all of these other guys I could get, you know, either at shows or I could write to them. They were all pretty accessible. What I didn't realize at the time was that there was one autograph per pack. So, I mean, back in the day, a set like that, I mean, it might have been like 4 or $5 a pack anyway. So 130 wasn't too far off base from that now i kind of wish i bought that because i would have liked to have busted it and like tried to put together an autographed set that might have been fun yeah have you seen what the prices of those are now if you can find them yeah they vary from like 15 dollars for some of the guys to anywhere of like over a hundred dollars for you know someone like brooks even more so yeah i've i've seen full sealed boxes and most of them are going for 600 plus wow yeah. So, so so oh okay yeah for the for the boxes. So yes. the boxes were limited to four there were 4850 boxes made. 2000 copies of each autographed card. And now what differentiates these cards from the packs from the ones that came in the box set is along the left hand side it says in gold foil one of 24000. The ones that came in the box set, so there was 9,099,999, that many, boxed sets in the red <laughs> box that say gold medal yeah. set. Math and down, math is hopeful, saying 9,999 was, was giving me trouble. Um, down the side of that set, instead of saying one of 24,000, it says gold medal set. 
on the left edge. So right. I'm assuming that the one that came in the blue box says something different along that edge. I don't know, because I've never seen one, and I don't know how many sets there are. Um, I would like to try to put together one built from packs, but all the ones that I saw on eBay said gold medal set on them, so they're from the boxed sets. Gotcha. And now you know. Yeah, and I think most of the most of the singles that I accumulated prior to picking up the full set also are from the box set. Um, Which so. there'd be no reason to break the box set because there's no autographs in there. Right. It just and seemed I, that like signature. And I really wanted to open it, but then I was like, nah, I'm not going to open it. <laughs> you should open it. I don't want to open it. You should open it for two reasons. If, if I can find, if I can find another one, I'll open the other one. Gotcha. See, I, I bought two and one I'd sent, I'd, I'd mail the cards out to the players to get signed. And the other one I put into pages. But it's that kind of like, kind of gloss where I feel like if you wait much longer, they're going to stick together. Yeah, that's a big problem with cards from that era. Especially well, ones that are on thinner cardstock. You know, one of my one of my minor grails, and you're going to laugh when I tell you this. I want a set of arena holograms. Uh, sorry, the arena... Um, no, don't say it. The draft so, arena draft pick cards. Don't say it. Where they're in the tuxedos. Oh, God. I knew you were going to say it. Because all the cards that I had were stuck together, and I had to peel them apart. And so I want a set that doesn't, that's like pristine. And that's impossible to find because nobody put, like, I think I bought a set a year later after it came out for like a dollar. And I want to say the cards were, maybe they were stuck together or maybe not. I don't know. Those might've been okay. But like more recently I bought a grab bag uh, that had the English version of the set. And I was like, oh, cool. I actually need the English version. And it was just like a brick. And they were stuck together. And I tried peeling them together. And then you just get that little bits of paper loss. And I hate that. So I, that's actually something like I need to find somebody who bought that set back in 91, put it in pages right away, forgot about it for 27 years, and now will sell it to me or 28 years or whatever. 92, I think. Good luck with that. I have some individual ones, but uh, that, that's one of the, that's one of my, on my list of dumbest cards ever made. I think everybody, it's on everybody's list of dumbest cards. It's pretty damn terrible. But getting back to the Miracle on Ice, and then uh, in 0405, Upper Deck put out a set called Legendary Signatures, and they made an 18-card set called Miracle Men, which there were signed and unsigned versions of these cards. And, um, you know, actually, I want to say, though, poor Steve Janicek cannot get a break because on his cards from the signature rookie set, he's in a track suit from the medal ceremony. They don't even have him sitting on the bench as a backup goalie, you know, in, in a uniform with the blocker hand hanging over the boards. And then in his uh, set in the 0405 Upper Deck Legendary Signatures Miracle Men set, he's also in a track suit. So it's just like, poor dude can never be, he's never pictured as a hockey player. Well, in his defense, he kind of wasn't, but... Well, in his defense, <laughs> he, he actually... He, did, he didn't let... play a single minute of that tournament. No, but he won the national championship with his team 
that uh, that, that prior year under under Brooks. So right. I mean, he was one of Brooks's guys, but like I mean, I just recently or not too long ago, I just rewatched uh, the movie Miracle, the Disney movie Miracle, and they're talking, you know, Coach Brooks and you know the other hockey people, and they're like, "Oh, you want to play Jim Craig?" But Janicek won you a state champion or won you the national championship. And he's like, we're not trying to win a national championship. We're trying to beat the Russians. Right. So. (laughs) Well, that was the, and that was part of the whole thing is, you know, Herb Brooks known for, you know, being a a great college coach brings together, you know, 70 some college and amateur players to come together and who's going to make this team and and it ends up being 20 guys that are we're all off of top-notch programs across Mm -hmm. the country Mm -hmm. that had won titles and won championships and won tournaments and you know these are guys that are considered you know top of their game but they're amateurs and they're going to get up against the biggest powerhouse hockey team ever some would say it's like the best assembly uh, of a hockey team of all time. And it's like, how do you fight against these guys? Well, you play them at, you match them at their own game. And that's what he did. And so it's like, yeah, here's, we have guys on this team that won titles and everything else, but maybe they're not the best one to be out there on the ice Mm -hmm. because we're trying to, we're trying to play a certain game and we're trying to match speed, you know, speed for speed because no one's ever done that to the Russians. No one's ever played the Russian version of hockey against them. Right. And and that's, that's exactly what he did. So yeah, you know, the, the normal, the guy that you would think that would be slated to be the number one guy wasn't the number one guy. Well, and it was, cause it was a different game. I mean, yeah. it was like you said, now what's interesting about that game is that a couple of things, because, you know, obviously I read that hockey news issue about all these different great games. The one about Miracle on Ice. Uh, one is that Russia was not used to being behind. They were used to getting a sizable lead. Oh, yeah. And then taking their foot off the gas and then just kind of like not going through the motions, but just kind of keeping the other team at bay. They were not used to having to come back from behind. Now it's like oh no, now we have to pull our goalie and we have to, which they weren't able to do. We have to pull our goalie and we have to try and score a a tying goal, right? And they were never in that situation. They weren't used to that situation. They were able to score a bunch of goals when there was lots of time on the clock. But when it came down to that last minute or two, they bombarded Craig with shots, but they couldn't pull even. Actually, I don't even say they be they bombarded him because in that oral history, they just said a lot of a lot of the shots they took were like dump-ins from the blue line and they were like far shots. And the reason for that is because when there was that last minute of play, Herb Brooks put the youngest guys out there on the ice. Put out the youngest guys because they'd have the, the they'd have the most stamina and energy you know fresh legs you know what i mean but they were they were the youngsters right and the team was all pretty young but they put out the the young guys right what did victor tikanoff do he put out the most experienced guys but he just he basically rode them to try to get that goal but there were some guys out there who were like in their late 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 20s early 30s you know guys like karlamov right like valerie karlamov so 
Brooks countered that with like youth, you know, and just said, yeah, right. you know, we don't, they don't have to be the most experienced hockey guys out there. I mean, one-on-one Karlamov would probably be a better player than one of the other players out there, but they were just younger and faster and they, they were fully energized and Tikhanov just left his other, his older guys out there for too long and, and relied on them. And that's, that's another reason why they lost. So, I mean, this is one of those games where it was like, it had every bit as much to do with the coaching as the performance of the players. Yeah, and and you're right. I mean, look at that tournament. If you go back and look at the scores, you know, leading up to that game, I mean, the Russian team, what they they played like Japan and beat them sixteen to nothing. Right. And then they played was it Belgium or Netherlands or something. Mm-hmm. Once like seventeen to four, I mean, so none of their games were they were all extremely lopsided mm-hmm. because nobody could compete, mm-hmm. and it was like that year in and year out. Every year they'd go. I mean, it was like okay, who we're playing for silver is pretty much what it was. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's the other thing too. I mean that. Because of the time frame that we were in and because of everything that happened in the world leading up to that, I mean, even in just a few months before that with, you know, um, you know, the invasion of, uh, you know, Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. um, the Iran hostage crisis and everything else. I mean, we're, we're in the middle of the cold war. It's like the evil enemy, you know, the USSR, you know, they, they stand for everything that, is anti-American and, you know, we were feeling pretty down on ourselves. So the fact that they were able to go in and just do what nobody expected Mm -hmm. was, was hugely uplifting to the American spirit. And I think, uh, you know, that's why it's, it's so endearing to many people, whether you were alive and watched it at the time or saw it later. I mean, even my kids know what the miracle on ice was, and they know they know about it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, you're talking forty years later. Yeah, pretty important game, and um, you know, obviously Disney—not obviously, but uh, Disney—made a movie back in 2004 called Miracle. Not the first dramatization of that uh, that game, but the most recent and probably the best. There was a 1981 movie called Miracle on Ice and uh, they used a lot of game footage for that because that's just what they did you know was that they, the made for TV one with Carl made, Malden yeah the made yes. for TV one with Carl Malden right Yeah, I honestly I think Carl Malden played a better Herb Brooks to be honest with you yeah I think he did too uh, he probably looked more like Brooks and uh, Kurt Russell's probably a little too good looking to be Herb Brooks but whatever that's Hollywood for you right yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm not saying Herb Brooks was ugly. I'm just saying, you know, hey, if Kurt Russell played me, even now, that's, that'd be fun. <laughs> that, that'd be okay. I, I'd be like, yeah, that, that's cool. Just throw some glasses on him, and then sure, we'll we'll just pretend, right? There you go. Another, another little plug, which I'm just going to throw out there, is that the newest issue of the Hockey News has a making of the film Miracle that I wrote. It's 10 pages long. I talked with some of the actors. I talked with some of the filmmakers. Um, I talked with a guy who played uh, one of the Russian players. 
Todd Harkins. He was a former Flame and Whaler, and he played Valerie Karlamov in that. I talked with Patrick O'Brien Dempsey, who played Michael Ruzioni. I spoke with Kenneth Mitchell, who played uh, Ralph Cox, the guy who gets cut last. I talked with Bill Ranford. We all remember Bill Ranford. Bill Ranford was the stunt double for Jim Craig, or he was for the actor who played Jim Craig, because that actor just, you know... You saw his face, but when they put the mask on him, it was Bill Ranford doing all the the stunts, the goalie stunts. Uh, and then I also talked with the um, cinematographer and a couple other people. So or that's almost all of them. A few other people. So uh, check that out. Uh, the Making making a Miracle in a new issue of The Hockey News, which is on newsstands right now. So it was actually really cool to write about that film because I learned a lot of stuff. Like, one little interesting tidbit I'll just throw out there from my article was originally they asked Bill Ranford to do the stunt work, and he declined because he said he didn't want to be away from his family for three or four months. So then they had a junior B goalie um, as the Jim Craig stunt double, and he wasn't very good because he was a junior B goalie. So Todd Harkins talked about, like, he would shoot the puck, but he would like shoot it wide of the net and the goalie would deflect the puck into the corner as they were supposed to do for their play for that scene. And the director was like, no, I want you to shoot and make it look like you're trying to score. So Harkins was like, okay. So then the next five shots he takes, he scores all five shots. So then the director's mad. He's like, well, no, he's supposed to block the shot and knock it into the corner. And he's like, well, you're telling me to score and this kid's a junior B goalie. So why don't we go get you a real goalie? So then they called back. They call, uh, He called up uh, Bill Ranford again. And then Ranford was like, all right, I'll do it. Because it was only for like the last six weeks of shooting and not for like the whole four-month schedule. So then they brought him in to be the stunt double for the Jim Craig character. And then when that scene where Karlamov crashes the net and like, you know, everybody stops and they're wondering if the goalie's going to be okay. They shot that from different angles, but the one that they used where they actually collide, Harkins and Ranford got their timing wrong. And Ranford was actually concussed from that hit. Like, really? yeah, Harkins' knee hit Ranford in the head. And they were, you know, they were rehearsing it and they didn't want to hurt each other, you know, but they were rehearsing it, they were rehearsing it, and then Harkins said the last shot we did... I got my timing wrong. I hit Ranford. My knee hit him in the head. Ranford told me, he's like, yeah, I was concussed. He said, I had never been hit that hard as an NHL player. He said, but you know what? We only had a little bit of shooting left for like the schedule. So he just pushed through it. But if you go to the DVD extra features, you'll see that collision. And then you'll see a goalie skating away with the towel up on his head and blood running down his face. And that's Bill Ranford. Dang. Yeah. So, I mean, there were some cool stories in there. Um, and I was just like, it was cool to hear that stuff. You know what I mean? That like, oh, wow. You know, like, because you never hear these things. Like, um, yeah. you, you, maybe you hear about them, but it's just so cool when you get to talk to people who, who did the thing that they did and, and, and hear these, these types of stories. So most of my hockey friends are like, oh, that's pretty cool. You wrote about Miracle. Because, you know, everybody in the United States, I mean, everybody will be like, yeah, Slapshot. You know, Slapshot's a classic. You can't touch that, right? 
even if you don't like it, you can't touch it, right? And then Young Blood, you have people who love Young Blood or people who hate Young Blood. Mighty Ducks, you have people who love it or hate it. But Miracle is like loved. Yeah, it's because it's such an endearing story. It transcends hockey. There may not have been a bigger message other than go out and win a hockey game, mm-hmm. but it became a bigger message because mm-hmm. of what it stood for at the time. And that's that's part of it. You know, we talked a lot about uh, these card sets that came out, but mm-hmm. we haven't really covered anything in recent times. Oh, yeah, please do. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> well, I mean, the only one I have in my notes is I know that in uh, 2010-11, there was that in the game Decades 1980. Yes. 1980s, which you and I bought some boxes of at the National. Yeah, and in the game um, actually had Mark Wells. Um, and he was signing at their table, I believe. Was yeah. That not the, yeah. Yeah, because what happened was was that he wasn't included in the set originally, but Dr. Brian Price was able to get him to come on board later, so they made an oversized version of the Mark Wells card that he signed for you at the show. Right. Right. That was cool. And I know Leaf in the last few years in various, like Leaf Metal that came out in 15, Mm -hmm. as well as Signature Series, both did treatments for various players from the miracle on ice team Mm -hmm. um they also came out with a i saw i only saw it online and i saw it for sale and it was like eight hundred dollars or something like that but they put together a booklet card that has 16 signatures wow um, from players so that that's pretty cool looking i'm not big on on booklet cards or necessarily leaf in general but it's that's a really nice looking card Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually kind of surprised that be, with it being the 40th anniversary that somebody didn't come out with something. I mean, I understand Upper Deck has the NHL license, but we're not talking about NHL. We're talking about International or Team USA or I don't know who the governing body would be to decide who can use what pictures, but I imagine it's being it's 40 years old and the shots and the images are going to be that old. I don't know. Does that become public domain at some point or no? So what's going to happen with that? So, okay. A couple of things. I believe the reason why now in the past I asked upper deck, I said, Hey, 2018 U S Olympic women's hockey team wins the gold medal. How about a set of the cards of the women who won that medal? Right. I would buy it. You would buy it. Upper deck told me it would have a very short, lifespan meaning that like hockey cards from 2019 20 nhl hockey cards have a shelf life of a year or more right because you're trying to build that set throughout the season so you're going to buy cards from that year and then maybe you'll go back in and a bit oh cards from two years ago i still need those right And you might buy them but something tied to an event like that you know you'd be like yay olympic hockey cool a, a set i'll buy it right and then six months later people be like oh the olympics yeah that happened like six months ago and they might not be that interested in it yeah i guess Uh, so i think that with this set i would love i would love to see a set like this this is something upper deck could have planned upper deck 
or hell, Tops, because Tops included Mike Ruzioni in um, an Olympic uh, an Olympic set from a couple years ago. I forget which one, but there's like signed versions of the cards because I know. Well, and they yeah. also had in 2011, there was a Miracle on Ice card in the American Pie set that they came out with, which is like a pop culture type. Is that Tops or yep. is that Panini? No, it's Tops. Oh, okay. Panini did. Uh, uh, I forget what theirs is called. Americana. Yeah, Americana. That's it. Barf. But, Ooh, a yeah. card of a surfboard. Yay. Well, Top's American Pie is more pop culture. And there's a card American of a Pet Rock. Card in there, so. Okay, that's cool. I'll need to track that one down. You know, I think there's where a regular there was... and a foil version. You know, here's an interesting little tidbit. 1980, um, it was uh, Corn Flakes. Pretty sure it was cornflakes. Cornflakes or frosted flakes. There was a ice hockey trading card from 1980. It has nothing to do with the miracle on ice, but I bought it for like a dollar or two. So it's 1980 Kellogg's Olympics sticker spelled S-T-I-C-K apostrophe R sticker trading cards. So it's a hardback sticker. Um and the front of it just has a generic shot of an international game. I don't even know what teams they are because the uh, logos are airbrushed out. And then on the back, it just has a description of ice hockey. So it's funny because it's a card and it, it has the 1980 Winter Games Lake Placid logo on the front of it. So it's like it has to do with Lake Placid. It has to do with ice hockey. But it has nothing to do with that particular team. But I, I still thought it was just such a neat little thing because it was from 1980 and it had to do with hockey. But uh, the Americana card, that would probably have like the actual players from the Miracle on Ice. And this was issued prior to the Miracle on Ice because it was part of a set of Olympic sticker cards that Kellogg's put out. So it came out before the actual yeah. game was played. Yeah, and folks, be sure to scroll down if uh, to, to check the links, because uh, I, I try to link to all of the stuff that I talk about. Yeah, because it's just basically the back is just a generic text. Ice hockey is played by two opposing teams on an ice surface known as a rink, blah, 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 right? So it's a hockey card from that year with the Olympic logo on it, but it doesn't really have anything to do with the, the actual team, which that would have been way awesomer. <laughs> yeah it would I was going to say getting back to our discussion about a box set yeah that would have been great for the 40th anniversary and that would have been something that like Tops could have gotten the rights to because I mean they've already done some of these sets with players in them whether it's Eruzioni or Jim Craig or some of the newer players or some of the women's players so yeah that would have been a really cool box set I mean I could see something like that at Target for like $14.99 or $9.99 or something, you know, hanging on a peg. Put it in like a blaster and like every 10 blasters has an autograph of somebody in it or something. Love it. Love it. Love it. Do do a blaster. You got your 20 players. You got your two coaches. Then you should probably do like a card of the Russian game, a card of the gold medal game, and a scene from the medal ceremony. There you go. 25 card set. And then you could do five parallel versions, gold medal parallels or whatever, with the text in gold or whatever. Yeah. And then you could do like a random autograph one in every like 10 boxes or something. 
That yeah. would be sweet. If you want to take it a step further, maybe you can. Well, whoever makes it can try to track down the guys that either don't sign anymore or can't sign anymore mm-hmm. for various reasons. Like, oh, I don't know, Herb Brooks because he's no longer with us. Yeah, Bob Suter. Bob Suter. Um, and somebody doesn't sign anymore. Oh, Mark Mark Pavlich doesn't sign anymore. Really? Yeah, he's not in good shape. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. I think, I don't know if it was CTE or not, but I know he's got effects of of things the last last time I heard. But yeah, I mean, other than that, you ch- chase some of that stuff. Even, I hate cut autos, but maybe if that's what you had to do, then they'd be like super rare ones that you could maybe find or something. You know, it's it's a shame because if it was, say, 1990s, whatever, if, if this was the 90s, or if cards were like what they were in the 90s, yeah, the set would have come out by now. I mean, the one that came out in 94, 95 by Signature Rookies, that was kind of a big deal. I mean, that was that was cool. But it, we were like back then, I mean, if you think about it, we had NHL cards, we had minor league cards, we had junior league cards, we had these like one-off sets that came out. I mean, there was there were a lot of different food issues. I mean, there was no shortage of cards to collect. Now it's like Upper Deck puts the stuff out. Or maybe there's some arena giveaways, or maybe there's some like at Tim Hortons, but it's 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 much more finite. And I mean, even though like the teams do issue their own sets, like the AHL teams and the uh, the junior league teams, it, it it's not like back when like Pro Cards was putting out, you know, these massive sets, or um, you know, some of the other companies that made like minor league or junior league sets. Yeah. I miss those days. Well, you take the good with the bad. Hey, speaking of bad, I want to just throw this out there really quick because I remember back uh, during the last Winter Olympics, I wanted to review this for Puck Junk, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. But I just want to, I, I just want to mention it because it has to do with the Miracle on Ice, albeit a little bit tangibly. So you know the cartoon show American Dad. Yes. Okay, so my joke Very is familiar. that the funny jokes that are written go to Family Guy, and the unfunny jokes go to American Dad. Uh, I don't know about that. Okay, so what's what's the dad's name? Is it is it it's uh, Stan, right? Stan Stan Smith. And the alien is Roger. Correct. So Stan is telling his son Steve that he needs to have a hobby. He needs to collect stuff. So then he walks him into like his man cave and he shows him his 1980 Miracle on Ice collection because, but then he goes, my mirror, but then even then they had to spoil the joke. He's like my Miracle on Ice and Ronald Reagan collection. So like half of the glass case has like Jim Craig's goalie pads and a team USA Jersey and um, whatever. And then the rest of it is like, I don't know, Ronald Reagan stuff. Cause the joke is he loved Ronald Reagan, but then Roger was like, Oh yeah, the miracle on ice. I lived that. He's like, what? He goes, yeah, I was a part of that team. And he shows them the medal. So now what's funny is that they show like live action footage, but they put Roger in there celebrating right. with the team or not yeah. footage. It was like photos. You saw that one. Yeah. Cause he was, he was on the team. He was on uh, the team, 
But then the, he revealed that he was on PEDs. Yeah, he used steroids. So then Stan is like, well, then this medal is ill-gotten. So right. then they, 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 they travel to the Olympic flame to throw the medal in the flame, kind of like Lord of the Rings when they're traveling to, um, what is it, Mount Doom or whatever. Yes. You know, so they could throw the ring into the in, into Mount Doom, right? So this sounded like a freaking hilarious episode. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is so funny. And I watched it, and I was just like, yeah, this is dumb. There's a reason why I stopped watching this show. Not even the Miracle on Ice could save American Dad. At least not in, in my mind. I like the show. <laughs> I'm, I'm a fan, so. Yeah, I so anyway, so just wanted to throw it out there. So there is that episode if you want to watch that or not. Um, it was kind of, it was amusing. It was more so amusing because they like animated some of the characters and they like, you know, actually had like the players voice those, uh, those players. I, I thought that was pretty cool. They should have done a Simpsons episode. That would be cool. Like they did with the baseball one and had all the character, all the baseball players animated back in the day. <laughs> Mattingly shaved those sideburns. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Love that. That's a that's a great one. Yeah. Well, Simpsons always had the Lisa on Ice episode, and that was really good. Yeah. Well, anyway, so uh, any other sets you need to mention before we uh, we sign off for the week? That's really it. I mean, we covered pretty much most of the major releases. Like I said, those Leaf ones came out in the last few years. They're just more or less one-offs. They're not really um, sets that are devoted to a specific specific thing. But, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting with the 40th anniversary. And then, who knows, maybe the 50th, somebody will come out with something. Oh, yeah, that'd be awesome. All right. Until next time, I want to thank you for listening to the Puck Junk Hockey Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe to it. Please tell your friends about it. And also, if you want to support it, head on over to shop.puckjunk.com. I'm selling original t-shirts. I'm also selling some card sets that you might be interested in. Thank you for listening, and uh, we hope you will listen to us again next time. For more hockey goodness, follow us on Twitter at PuckJunk.